Well, greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. My name is James White. It's an unusual time of day, I know. Uh, I am coming to you from Tullah, well, actually outside of Tullahoma, about 20 minutes from, 20, 25 minutes from Tullahoma, uh, Tennessee, where the Y Calvinism uh, <clears throat> conference is taking place right now. Uh, no, I'm not there uh, yet. I will be this afternoon after lunch. Um, unfortunately, you know, I've got a lot of stuff to do uh, on this trip. And uh, even when I'm at places, I've still got preparation and teaching and debates coming up. The debate with Jason Breda will be on Saturday uh, afternoon, 3.30 to 6, I think, uh, Central Standard Time. Pretty sure of that. Um, I speak... Uh, the night before, then I have a, the Q&A right afterwards, and I got to come flying back here because I'm doing an online um, discussion, lecture thing uh, on the Trinity prior to the Council of Nicaea, uh, which is a big topic that just sort of got dropped on me in the middle of all this. So <clears throat> we'll see how it goes. Um, could end up being mainly discussion of uh, Biblicism. Uh, oh, I know why it's so bright in here. <laughs> um, to say that I uh, um, set things up very, very quickly uh, today uh, is a uh, is an understatement. Uh, and I, I left some stuff here. And I don't know if I can do anything about it from sitting here. Ha! There we go. Ah, oh, that must look so much better. <laughs> ah, the, the Kuji looks a lot better, too. Uh, <clears throat> anyway... Uh, hopefully this is working. Literally, nothing was set up. Not a not a camera was up. Only got one set up. The modem wasn't even on. Um, yeah, so I've been running around like the proverbial chicken. And you might say, why? Well, I, I doubt we're going to get anything in the rest of the week. Um, and what we do here, we consider to be important. And a lot of people... Um, Feel the same way, thankfully. Um, and there's some things to talk about. And um, let's start with the Alabama Supreme Court. Um, what the Alabama Supreme Court said 100 years ago would not have even been remarkable. How it said it 100 years ago would not have been remarkable. The only thing that's remarkable is the revolution that has taken place in the United States over the past hundred years and the uh, radical directions that has gone over the past 40 and especially over the past 15. We are seeing uh, the result of secularism. Remember seculare, the secularum, the world, the worldly system uh, secularists have nothing more than that, and so secularists read um, a court decision in the state of Alabama that quoted the Bible, which was completely normal uh, 100 years ago, completely normal at the beginning of this nation. Um, the vast majority of Americans don't know that. Uh, they are ignorant of that fact. Purposefully so. Uh, we need to understand that this revolution required the taking over the educational system, the um, shifting the educational system to a secular model. And as a result, uh, they don't know the um, Christian nature of 
uh, even uh, judicial statements in the past. Ju the, judici the judiciary especially, because you're dealing with right and wrong, moral foundations, um, citation of scripture was commonplace. The formation of the law in our nation, again, commonplace to quote from scripture, uh, because that's where our laws came from. So, uh, you know, the, um, we even had treaties that, that began um, in, in the name of the Most Holy Trinity, which, of course, won't happen today, but that's where the revolution is taking place. The statements of the Alabama Supreme Court in the recognition of the humanity of unborn children does raise a tremendous area that, let's be honest, most of us have wanted to stay out of, um, but in vitro fertilization. When you look at scripture, you see children are a blessing from God. You see people praying for children. You know about what happens to Samuel and things like that. Uh, <clears throat> but once you no longer believe that, once you, you embrace the modernistic thinking to where, you know, we know now why children why children are born. We, we know now why, why couples can't have children. We can get around these things. And put that together with some of the responses that have been offered to the Alabama Supreme Court, where <laughs> I was listening to someone commenting on this, and the thought crossed my mind early on. Oh, man, talk about autonomy. This is, this is where the secular emphasis upon human autonomy, um, where you, you cannot have a meaningful legal system where human autonomy is part of the foundation because we, we have to have laws. You, you can't just do whatever you feel like doing. And there has to be overarching principles of morality and direction the society is supposed to go. And all of that comes back to uh, and is relevant to um, God's law and our createdness. And the commentator then read from secular sources talking about reproductive autonomy. Uh, this threatens our our autonomy. Yeah, it's 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 all through it. And these people are 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 literally talking about being terrified, terrified by this decision as well they should be because to recognize that there is a standard above the creature is terrifying to the secularist um their entire system is based upon the not only the centrality of an individual but the fundamental uh, reality that once we die that's it. There's nothing more. The idea of building for your great-grandchildren, the idea of future judgment, all these things that give a consistent and usable foundation to law and morality and society. Secularism hates these things and cannot stand these things. And so, oh, if, if, the, if the Alabama Supreme Court has decided this, this issue based upon biblical principles, 
But then, let's be honest, only a handful of ethicists and moralists and theologians over the past 25 years, I'm, I'm not sure when the first in vitro fertilization was, maybe as many as 40 years ago, but especially with, you know, now that we've, we've mapped the, the genome and stuff like that, these, these issues are not easy issues. And what they, what they lead us to, honestly, uh, I saw, I think it was Ben online a couple days ago, and obviously it was the result of the Alabama thing, said IVF should be outlawed. And we do live in a, in a land where designer babies are taking place, um, literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of unique human embryos are produced and destroyed or frozen, put in suspended animation. Uh, this kind of, we are in charge of our own bodies. We don't have to be concerned about what God wants. Um, did you read Brave New World? Um, I had to. I always found Brave New World such a, you know, 1984 was dark in a governmental tyranny, oppression type way. Brave New World was dark in its emptiness. Humans emptied of what makes us human. And... That's what we're talking about here. We, we, are, we are talking about, do you remember in Brave New World where you had the alphas and the betas and the deltas and the epsilons and, and you, you literally designed people to have a low IQ so they could do the dumb jobs and then you had the higher people and, and um, you know, smaller and smaller numbers, you know, hierarchical and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And it just, sexuality had become just a, a thing you do. Same thing with um, uh, this perfect day, where human sexuality was just—it uh, was cheapened. It was turned into a recreational activity, which is again where we are, rather than a covenantal activity. We've all been deeply influenced by. It. I, I don't. I. And, and this started before the sexual revolution really started. The sexual revolution was already in the universities, but it started before then because I was getting this stuff in my youth and I was in a you know fundamentalist context. So it was coming from every which direction even then. Anyway, uh, these books, they, 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 it's just so, so empty. And this is where we are. And we know, we absolutely know that the, some of the greatest minds of the past <clears throat> came in defective bodies. Uh, Beethoven, my goodness, would have been aborted uh, for many different reasons. Many, many different reasons would have been aborted. And I listen to those symphonies and I go, what a loss. How many Beethovens have been aborted? Um, how many doctors whose minds would have seen connections that ours cannot or that AI cannot have been aborted. Um, we, we think about these things. I think about these things and 
I am once again, and this was not what I was raised with. So this is something that the Lord is having to sanctify me about. But once again, when I hear people saying, look, the only, the only solution to any of these things is found not only in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the embracing of it. We, mankind, will destroy himself outside of the eventual gracious restraint of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's his purpose to build his church. If mankind destroys himself, that church is going to be destroyed. Now, now don't get me wrong. There could be massive upheavals, global upheavals, that the church would continue on. Remember, the church made it through the Black Death. Uh, by God's providential care and God's decree. But man, I'll tell you, in the middle of that, it would have been real easy to lose faith, to just throw your hands up and say, it's, it's done, it's over. Everything we thought was true isn't. We always have to remember, and this, this again, if you don't believe that Scripture is what Scripture claims to be, and man, there's fewer and fewer people who actually believe it, then you... We don't have a divine perspective from which to look at what's happening in this world and to come to proper conclusions about it. And that's truly problematic, um, both for the secular world as well as for the Christian world, where there is so much willingness to uh, abandon Scripture and its highest, um, its highest authority. But it does, it does, it is there. It gives us that perspective. And for um, a husband and wife, greatly desirous of children, of their own children, I get it. I understand. Um, but it's the Lord that opens the womb. You might say, well, but he's just using a mechanism. The mechanism produces numerous, unique human embryos that will never see life, and they are destroyed. If that's human life, that's the destruction of human life, and the Christian couple should go, no. If the Lord has closed our, our womb, speaking as a couple, um, there are many, many children that need homes. Adoption is beautiful. It's biblical. Um, it's appropriate. It's proper. It's God-honoring. And so Alabama's insightful decision should prompt further, deeper moral discussion. But the problem is, uh, I, I don't see the concurrent spiritual awakening amongst Americans to allow that meaningful kind of conversation to yet take place. Let's hope and pray that it happens. Um, right now, I don't see it. Um, a couple of things I that I didn't get to in the last um, dividing line that I, th I thought of only afterwards. And so my, my apologies to you uh, for that. Uh, I, I really need to find a, a different way. Um, of getting to 
The one thing I don't like about accordions is the verse entry thing. It's too small. I need to have I need to have the box thing, um, push button. Anyway, uh, one thing that I didn't get to that I wanted to get to on the last program was the assertion that was made in the purgatory debate with uh, Trent Horn. We are never told to confess our sins to God. What's fascinating to me is um, there is no such thing as a sacramental priesthood in the New Testament. But here you have somebody who's saying, you're never told to confess your sins to God. And what he wants you to believe, because there's a whole article, in fact, he linked to it in response to somebody else, why you should confess your sins to a priest, wants you to believe you should do it to a priest. <laughs> so do, do you see the contradiction? And telling someone there's nothing in the Bible to tell you to confess to God. There's also nothing to tell you to confess to a priest, but I want you to do the one, not the other. It's just, um, there's been a lot that's come out. And there's a lot more that's going to come out by the weekend. Um, I, I think. Uh, we'll see. Anyway, a lot of people said, well, but um, what about First John 1? And this is a message we have heard from him declared to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, so we're talking about God, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the focus is on God uh, walking in his light. He himself is the light. And only in him can we have fellowship with one another. So there is the, the community of faith, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. That's not through some concept that's going to come a millennia in the future of transubstantiation in the Mass. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, <clears throat> you can, in, in a broad sense, say that if we people of God, say that there is no sin amongst us. Uh, we deceive ourselves and the truth, the truth is not in us. <clears throat> but it seems far more obvious that what John's writing against here are those who would say, I have no sin. And they're speaking personally. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. This isn't some communal deception. This is our self-deception taking place. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So again, these are plural pronouns. They're, this is being addressed to the whole Christian community. But it's very clearly saying, if we say we have no sin, that's something individuals say. If we confess our sins, confess to who? Well, the argument normally is made, well, this is confession in the body. And we all do that. I, I don't know. I suppose there might be some fundamentalist churches, but... 
uh, almost every church that I know of has a part in their church service. It's a part of the liturgy. It's a part of the prayers um, to have prayers of confession. We confess our sins before God, um, and we, we seek forgiveness. So that's, that's a given uh, when we meet corporately. Uh, this takes place. There's there's corporate confession of sin, so on and so forth. But it doesn't make a lick of sense to go, and so when I know I've sinned, I need to wait until the next corporate meeting to confess to other people. No, you confess to sin. You confess your sin to God, and you receive forgiveness of sins and a cleansing from all unrighteousness. And that comes all from God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. The Roman Catholic is so accustomed to priestly absolution and the, the, the confessional and these types of things. They, they just read the New Testament not recognizing there are no priests in the New Testament. Um, as we, did, I, did I start on this and not finish it last time? Mm. with preparation for so many things at the same time, it's really difficult for me to remember what I've gotten to when I haven't. But it is God who is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Not a priest, not other people. It is God. Um, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It's the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all sin. And the later development where you create this sacramental system through which this grace is channeled has no place in 1 John anywhere. Now, when, when I challenged, and this is because there were two different things that sort of came together in the debate. When I challenged Trent Horn on his assertion that Ignatius had said, that you need to have bishop, priest, and deacon in the church. I said, where did Ignatius ever say that? And he immediately said, well, he said presbyter. So he knew um, exactly where I was going. And again, see the debate with Mitch Pacwa on how historically uh, presbyteros uh, became hieron. Now, I did mention this in the last program. I just don't think we followed it up. Because some people might not know um, where to go to see where presbyteroi and episcopoi. Episcopos is an overseer, bishop, elder. Uh, presbyteros is an elder. And... It is recognized by the vast majority of New Testament scholars that these terms are used interchangeably. But where? Let me give you an example so you're prepared. When Paul writes to Titus, and again, Trent Horn doesn't seem to believe that it's overly relevant whether Paul actually wrote these letters or not. He's willing to accept, quote-unquote, critical scholarship uh, that has a limited Pauline corpus. He did that with the Poirier, anyways, the Poirier information. 
um, on the meaning of Theonoustos. So if you're not familiar with this, once again, in uh, amongst many New Testament uh, scholars today, they do not believe that Paul wrote everything that's attributed to him in the New Testament. Specifically, generally of his epistles, they will reject Ephesians and Colossians, and then all the pastorals for 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Well, Philemon depends. Anyway, uh, so this leads to having to view these books. You, know, you can... If you're going to still say they're fully canonical, then the only reason they're canonical is because the church has said so, even though that was not a part of the discussion in the early church at all. It's amazing how many people will try to use the early church and then shoehorn that stuff into uh, modern parlance and beliefs and things like that. It just doesn't work. Back to Titus. Titus 1.5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains... And appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So, presbyterus, presbyteroi, the elders being appointed. This is something that when when Paul went through the churches where he had planted planted the faith, <clears throat> he went back through them and he strengthened them by appointing elders. Elders and deacons are the two New Testament offices. The only offices we have any qualifications for given in Scripture. There are no qualifications for priests. There are no qualifications for cardinals. There's no qualification for popes. Uh, there's no qualification for female pastors. Um, there's qualifications for two offices. Elders, elders, pastors, bishops, they're all the same thing. And deacons. Those are the, the two offices that we have in the New Testament. So, uh, he tells Titus, stay in Crete and set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious, for the episcopon, the episcopos, the overseer, the bishop, must be beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of dishonest gain, etc., etc. So notice, appoint elders. Here's the qualifications. The bishop must be this. It's the same office, used interchangeably. There's no question about it. This is not a priest. There's a perfectly good Greek term for priest. There's a perfectly good Greek term for uh, chief priest, used a lot many times, but that's not found in the New Testament church anywhere. This is a mutation. It does not come from reflection on the biblical text. It comes from outside the Christian faith. Religions around the Mediterranean had priests, a priest class. And just as Israel wanted to have a king... And God warned them, uh, you get a king, this is what's going to happen, and that's what happened. They still wanted to have a king, they wanted to be like the nations around them. And what happened over time, uh, we ended up with priests. Uh, even though there are no qualifications for a priest, nothing in God-inspired scripture, nothing that we know comes from the apostles to even define what these things are. So there you go. 
Um, those are fascinating conversations. We need to be having those conversations. We need to know what the New Testament teaches about these things. And so I wanted to uh, touch on that. But I also wanted to touch on one of my favorite early church fathers that I didn't get to. Um, and that was Melito Sardis. Um, Melito Sardis did reject the deuterocanonical books. Um, Trent Horn's um, ahistorical spin is anachronistic. Let me just give you Melito's own words as provided by Eusebius. We have very little from Melito. It's a shame. His Paschal Sermon is awesome. I included a section I translated from it. If, 1997, 98 now. Oh, coming up on 30 years. Anyway, um, in the Forgotten Trinity book, because his testimony to the deity of Christ is very, very clear and uh, compelling and beautiful and encouraging and all those types of things. But Eusebius um, had access to some of Melito's writings that have not survived down to our day. One of the reasons that Melito was not as popular as he would have been otherwise is he was on the wrong side of a debate. Uh, he was on the wrong side of the Quartadeciman controversy. And you go, what? <laughs> um, the Quartadeciman controversy was a controversy in the early church, lasted for quite some time, uh, part of the early division between the East and the West on the date of the celebration of Easter. And the East used basically the Jewish way of reckoning. The West had a different way of doing it. Um, Victor, Bishop of Rome, threatened to divide the church over it. Uh, Irenaeus told Victor to cool his jets. <laughs> um, and, you know, it eventually did become a part of all the things that piled up over time that led to the Great Schism in 1054. Anyway, uh, Melito was on the wrong side of the Court of Decimon controversy, and honestly, we may have fewer of his writings because of that. Which, to be honest with you, does demonstrate that at times history can be very childish. In how, in, people in history can be very childish. I guess history can't be. All of that, uh, church history professor guy here talking, um, here, as recorded uh, by Eusebius in his church history, are the words of Melito. Melito to his brother Onesimus, greeting, since you have often, in your zeal for the word, expressed a wish to have extracts made from the law and the prophets concerning the Savior and concerning our entire faith, and have also desired to have an accurate statement of the ancient books as regards their number and their order, I have endeavored to perform the task accordingly. When I went to the east and came to the place where these things were preached and done, so in other words, he went to Israel, I learned accurately the books of the Old Testament and send them to you as written below. Their names are as follows. And then he gives, um, basically, the, he gives the Jewish canon. Now, very, very quickly, there's different writings of the Jewish canon, sometimes the 22, sometimes 24. Almost all the differences are uh, like lamentations would be included along with Jeremiah. 
whereas we distinguish between them, which is why we have 39, and the 12 minor prophets are always considered as one. Um, and so there, there can be small differences because of smaller books being included with larger books. Remember, this is the period of time of scrolls, certainly for the Old Testament. New Testament Christians didn't like scrolls. Uh, they, they, they were codex people. So, uh, but we're talking Old Testament here. And what you would do is you'd put a major prophet at the beginning of the scroll because that's going to be read more often. Because if, if you got to if you got to get to the minor prophet at the end, you, you'd end up with Popeye arms. <laughs> through that scroll. Can you imagine? You know, we used to have the the, the drills, uh, the the Bible drills. Uh, I even I even won a free trip to Glorietta one year. That's actually that was Bible memorization, but I think we did have some drills thing along with it, where you know you've got your Bible and then uh, Jonah chapter three, ding, you know. Uh, anyways, I, that's great. Do it. Can you imagine doing it with scrolls? <laughs> you know, Jonah chapter three. I'll be back in fifteen minutes. That's <laughs> just trying to get the other scrolls and yeah, yeah, that'd be pretty wild. Anyway, so um, Melito goes to Israel and he he is providing this information to Onesimus and he wants to have extracts made from the law and the prophets concerning the Savior and concerning our entire faith. And he's wanted to have an accurate statement of the ancient books as regard their number and their order. Now, we know without question that there was controversy over this, and it was primarily due to one simple thing. The Greek Septuagint manuscripts we have today, which are all Christian in origin, contain the apocryphal or deuterocanonical books, even though most of them weren't even written in Hebrew. And the Jewish people did not accept them. And despite what Trent says, the oracles of God from Romans 3 that were committed to the Jewish people were the scriptures. There's no question about that. There really isn't. So this is what he's providing to Onesimus, is the uh, number and order of the books, and he gives what you and I have, basically, as the 39 books, 22, 24, again, it's, he gives the Jewish canon. He does not include the apocryphal books. So Trent's idea was, well, he was just giving the Jewish canon. Why would, that's not what he says. Onesimus wants to have an accurate statement of the ancient books as regards their number and their order. Oh, well, he just means the Jewish canon. Why? Why would, why would you limit that just to Jewish canon? Well, he gave him the Jewish canon, but not the Christian canon. There's nothing here that says that. This is anachronistic abuse of those sources. It really is. Remember one thing. The more an individual knew of the Old Testament, the more an individual knew of the Hebrew language, the less likely that person was to accept the apocryphal books. Remember, Augustine is very important in promoting the Deuterocanonicals because he thought they were part of the Jewish canon, and he was wrong, which is why tradition always needs to be able to be examined by a higher standard which is the standard scripture. So, <clears throat> I was thinking 
yesterday uh, about um, something that I, I should have said during the debate. And again, you know, there's lots of stuff you can think of. And it's just, it's, it's the issue's time. You know, do you have time to explain it? Do you have time to explicate it? Is it going to leave people wondering what in the world that was that about? I have no idea. That, that means this person seems confused. You know, there's lots of things that come up. So I wrote Trent Horn a, a, a post on Twitter. I still call it Twitter and I still will. Um, I said, Trent Horn, two quick related questions that should have come up in our debate but didn't. First, are you familiar with anyone in church history, say up to the year 1800, that believed Paul was in error about the day of the Lord, generally, and more specifically, used that as the means of allowing 1 Corinthians 3 to remain relevant to some concept of purgatory, the Aiken argument? Back up, if you haven't listened to the debate, you need to. But one of the glaring errors in Rome's abuse of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is the fact that the day will show it in Paul's language there. The day is obviously the day of the Lord. It's the day, it's the final day of judgment. <clears throat> but purgatory doesn't take place the final day of judgment. Purgatory takes place before then. It takes place as soon as someone dies. And so how can that be relevant? And so it came up in our argument <coughs> our debate, I said, you know, and he said, well, as Jimmy Aiken has suggested, Paul was wrong about the day of the Lord. He thought it was going to happen in his lifetime. And then toward the end of his life, started to realize it was otherwise, but he had already read First Corinthians, had already written First Corinthians. <clears throat> so here's the idea. Um, well, we don't have to worry about the fact that it says the day of the Lord because Paul was wrong about that. Now, I, I sort of think that's the end of the debate as far as 1 Corinthians 3 is concerned, to be honest with you. Um, but Trent's a brave guy, so he threw it out there. And so I asked, um, anybody in church history? Uh, Cardinal Bellarmine, maybe? I mean, he wrote a lot on purgatory. It was very important in that subject. Uh, Council of Florence? Something you know, really official like that? Doctors of the church, stuff like that. Anybody? Prior to <clears throat> the Enlightenment and the popularity that the apostles could get things wrong. Popularity of that view. Um, I think it's a it's an important question. Because, you know, when I first started debating Roman Catholics, they're always like, ah, oh, it's just a novel Protestant interpretation and you need to have the consistent interpretation of the church down through... Uh, years and all that kind of stuff. And now the novel interpretations are being used by Catholic apologists. And what's interesting is um, they're primarily using novel Protestant interpretations to defend their new novel Francis style. <laughs> the days of Francis, you know. Uh, and I, that came up, but the, what purgatory was like in the year 1600 and what purgatory is like in the year 2024 are very different things. They're very different things. And nobody back in 1600 would even recognize 
someone going, well, you know, it might be instantaneous and it might just be this. And it might maybe going, what? We've been told this is the church's teaching. And it involves temporality. It involves, okay, so temporality, passage of time. There's the first question. Secondly, in the same time frame, do you know of any early church writers all the way up to the modern period who understood ta ergon, the work, in 1 Corinthians 3, the, the work that's being judged, uh, the quality of that work that's being judged by the fire, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, taught Aragon in 1 Corinthians 3 to refer to converts as suggested in light of the thesis of Daniel Freyer Griggs, which is what um, Trent presents in his book and what he was presenting in the debate. And that is that what you have in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is a testing of different Christian leaders' converts. And some of those converts would be wood, hay, and straw. Some of those converts would be gold, silver, precious stones. Um... And that's just an incredibly unusual reading. And then the idea being, well, if your converts don't turn out right, see, I don't even know how you make the connection here. Zamiao, you will suffer loss. And he wanted to go, and I did talk about how Bauer aren't game and Donker. Well, BDAG, BAGD, second, third editions. Um, the term can mean punishment, but Paul never uses it that way. He says he would suffer the loss of all things for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's not being, I will be punished for all things for the sake of Jesus Christ. Completely different concepts. And, but the idea, I guess, is, well, if your converts don't turn out too well, then you will be punished, purified somehow. It doesn't make any sense. Um, you, you, do yourself a favor. Take the answers that Peter Stravinsis gave me in 2001, take the answers that uh, Tim Staples gave me in, what was it, 2010? Is that when we did the dividing line debate? I think it was 2010. And then take the answers that Trent Horn gave. <laughs> Just put them together. <laughs> or try. <laughs> you won't be able to. They are all over the map. All over the place. The infallible church and her representatives I, I'm just pointing it to you, pointing it out to you. So I, I asked these two questions yesterday because I'd be interested in what the response was. Well, what's really interesting, um, he says, there's many things I could ask you, like the alleged Sabatine privilege from a forged papal bull you brought up in closing, but I won't because our debate is over. Although I'm sure purgatory will come up again on our programs. Be well and prayers for your debate with Dale Tuggy. Well, all right. Um, He's under no obligation to answer a question. That's fine. Um, they're perfectly valid questions. But I, but the excuse that he gave us, well, uh, like the alleged Sabatine privilege from a forged papal bull you brought up in closing. And here's what I, I wrote in response. I said, um, I'm sorry you chose not to respond. Uh, they are important questions going to methodology, consistency, and the like. But the issue of the Sabatine privilege is not so easily dismissed. Since whether it was a valid papal bull or not is not relevant to the point I was making. And this is important. Um, my argument was not there was a papal bull that uh, provided this. No, I'm well aware of the fact that there's allegations it was forged and it, and it never happened and stuff like that. 
the problem is that Rome has given people permission to believe it. I didn't ask, but if I had asked anybody out here wearing the brown scapular, I bet you people would have put their hands up. I bet you it, it's a Carmelite thing. And you got to understand, you know, Dominicans and Franciscans and Carmelites, they're all doing this uh, political stuff for hundreds of years. And so I went on to write, let's say it wasn't real. Though a faithful Catholic is allowed to believe in the idea is set forth, another truly odd idea. The point is that those who opposed it, mainly political reasons, fights between different groups, Carmelites, things like that, did not do so because it clearly is based upon the presence of what we might call normal time in purgatory. Nobody said, oh, that's silly. There are no Saturdays in purgatory. Just like the fire may just be Jesus, an assertion, by the way, that you quoted in the debate um, on the Ali Bastucki show as coming from Benedict XVI. When I looked it up, the only official wording I could find had him saying um, some recent, the quote, some recent theologians are of the opinion that the fire which both burns and saves is Christ himself, the judge and savior, which is hardly an authoritative pronouncement. I mean, that's what he said. Some recent theologians are of the opinion. This is now dogmatic teaching? This is, because he, he took that as, well, there you go. See, we've never defined what fire was. Oh yeah, sure, I can show you pictures of a, of a hand burned into wood of a, of a religious sister who appeared out of purgatory to warn people and it's still there and they still venerate it and all the rest of this kind of stuff. Yeah, but that the church has never really spoken on about fire. And in fact, you know, uh, maybe, you know, it's just Jesus. You know, oh, that's a opinion of some recent theologians. Oh, that's really authoritative. Um, anyway, this can't be right because purgatory might be instantaneous. No, everyone recognized that purgatory involved time. Lots and lots of time. Which is why you could get hundreds of years of indulgences by visiting relics and climbing stairs on your knees. Nobody would be doing that if they bought into today's diminished doctrine of purgatory. Remember how Pope Innocent III appeared to St. Lutgardus of Aweers in Belgium. I probably slaughtered Aweerius. Who knows? It's a-Y-W-I-E with a grave accent, R-E-S. Anyways, appeared to St. Lutgardus of someplace in Belgium. <laughs> How's that? Um, Pope Innocent III, one of the most powerful medieval popes, appeared to this saint from purgatory. And said, quote, said to her, alas, alas, it is terrible and will last for centuries if you do not come to my assistance. Centuries from one of the greatest popes in history. That was the relevance of the Sabatine privilege and that relevance remains. So in other words, the relevance of pointing to the Sabatine privilege is it was based upon the idea that time passes in purgatory long periods of time.
centuries. And if people didn't believe that, then why did you measure indulgences in days, months, weeks, years of time out of purgatory? If there is no time in purgatory. Oh, it's just... No, that's what people believed. Be honest. Read the books that were being written at the time. Not only the visions of saints, but read the, the, the theologians of the time. And they are not sitting there going, well, you know, we don't really know if time passes. They're not doing any of this stuff. There was a visceral terror of the punishments of purgatory. There were tremendous discussions about the location of purgatory. Most people put it in the bowels of the earth near hell. So the same fires of hell uh, would be used for the purification of those who would eventually be getting out, but are going through the process of purification. They talked about location. They talked about time. They talked about all these things. What they didn't talk about is liberation theology. What they didn't talk about is 21st century sensitivity to such issues. And the fact that there were thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of Roman Catholics over not just decades, but centuries, who've worn the brown scapular, who've prayed the prayers. And they believe that on the Saturday after their death, if they died wearing that scapular, and how many, how many Roman Catholic soldiers died in World War I wearing that scapular? How many in World War II? And they believed that if they died wearing that scapular, that on the Saturday after their death, Mary herself would descend into purgatory and release them from the sufferings. Now, there's all sorts of theological problems with that. I mean, if, if you need to be there for a hundred years because of all your attachments, not punishments, even though you know, that's the language, um, Mary's showing up, what, what's she going to do? Just provide you the massive plenary indulgence right then and there or something? I don't know. I don't know. The whole thing's a mess. One way or the other. No apostle of Christ ever even dreamed of this type of stuff. It's so far removed from Romans. You know, if you're pretty much just reading Romans and Galatians and Philippians and Hebrews and stuff like that, you're going, what are you babbling about? I, I get it. I, I understand. Um, so... Um, <laughs> so some guy named uh, oh it's the militant Thomas guy well what, what do you expect uh, Christian B what is it Wagner is that the name militant Thomas Mr. White I don't know how to say this nicely but you are simply annoying the debate happened it is now over act like a man and move on no need to rehash the debate 20 ways on Twitter So if you comment about it and you bring stuff like that that up, oh, just 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 move on. <laughs> you want someone who's annoying? Mm, there's there's the annoying guy right there. It's funny how the those who are annoying don't realize how annoying they are. Yeah. So <coughs> I, I just feel like it's really really important to um, to start charting what seems to me to be a a path that Rome's apologists are starting to choose to use. When you, because when you start going with, well, Paul didn't write that. Well, Paul was wrong about that. Uh, well, this 
progressive Protestant exegesis that's never been heard of by any church father, by any pope, by any council, by anybody in Roman Catholicism. We're going to go with that as our way of defending this point. That didn't happen when I first started debating Catholic answers. That didn't happen. But it's happening now. And the question is, why? Um, is, is it because of Francis? Is it because it's, <clears throat> it's inevitable to recognize the people he's putting in places? He continues to put in places. I just, I, I don't know where I could find the, the, the Twitter, uh, the tweet that I saw. <clears throat> but, oh yeah, you know, I mean, the Vatican was huge on, vac on the vaccines. Big, big, big time into, into the vaccines. And one of the women that I think worked for Pfizer or Moderna, but I think it was Pfizer, on the vaccines, which we now know are killing people to this day, um, he placed her on another Vatican board, another ba Vatican council. Uh, you know that last year he put people who have made pro-choice statements on pro-life councils. I mean... It doesn't take a genius to get red-pilled and go, this guy is seeking to fundamentally change the Roman Catholic Church in all of its aspects, including the aspects of its scholarship. And sure, were there Roman Catholics at Boston College in the 60s that would have said Paul was wrong about this? Oh, yeah, because you know the Jesuits and those people have been, and he's a Jesuit, have been out in the forest for a long, long time. Uh, I get it. But is that what's causing all of this? Is that what Jerry Matatix saw, I wonder? Some of you, most of you, don't know who Jerry Matatix was. I need to find that picture. I do have it. In fact, I have it in my photo thing. The problem is... It's amongst 22,601 other pictures. <laughs> that's, the, uh, uh, that's, that's the problem with that, uh, is that it's, you know, good luck finding uh, anything in here. I, I sit here, and there have been times, because I was looking for stuff, where I've just scrolled and scrolled and scrolled and scrolled and um, nothing. Uh there it is! Ha 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 ha! Oh, that's... Boy, is that... Wait a minute. Okay, there's two of them. Maybe this one will be a higher quality. Nope. Looks exactly the same. Okay. Well, whatever. Uh... Yep. Okay. Ding, 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 ding. There. There's Jerry, and that's a picture that Catholic Answers published in This Rock magazine. It was a full-size inside cover, I think, maybe the back cover, I think it was an inside cover of This Rock magazine uh, sometime, um, what, 89, 90, 91, I don't think it was 91, 89, 90, somewhere in there. That's Jerry Matatix. Jerry Matatix was the first ordained PCA minister to convert to Roman Catholicism. He was staff apologist for Catholic Answers. Uh, I've debated him, I believe, 13 times. Um, 
the first debate I ever did was against Jerry Matatix in August of 1990 uh, at St. Cyprian Catholic Church in Long Beach, California on Sola Scriptura. <laughs> Debated him twice on Sola Scriptura, uh, once on Long Island, once in California. So both ends of the country, I guess. And he was their man. He was the one going around debating everybody from uh, uh, Calvary Chapel and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, they don't talk about him anymore. Um, they don't talk about him anymore because of the fact that not only did he leave, and that would have been early 90s because I debated him on the papacy in 93 and he was already he had already left Catholic Answers. And Keating and Madrid had still recommended him for the debate, but I don't think they would much longer after that because I don't know exactly when he came straight out and said, I'm a sede vacantist. I'm, uh, I don't believe there's a valid um, pope today and stuff like that. Um, I don't know exactly when that was. But I always gotten the feeling that that was what had started it that he had started to ask questions or started to take positions that Catholic Answers... Look, Catholic Answers has to be very careful. They do all sorts of presentations in churches and stuff like that, and they're uh, tiptoeing between all sorts of landmines, and they were doing that before Francis. Now it's big time. Uh, not easy to do, I'm sure. And so you don't hear almost any discussion about... Jerry, of course, challenged Keating and Madrid and all these people to do debates, and they would never touch with the info poll. I think he did debate Bob Sengenis, but Sengenis got himself into all sorts of trouble, too, and sort of, you know, was out there with the geocentrism and plays around the city of Akintist groups, and, you know, I don't know, like I said, I don't know where he is now. But anyway, uh, these... These guys back then, they they did not, in, in, in any way, shape, or form, take the perspectives that are now being taken by Trent Horn, Jimmy Aiken. Jimmy Aiken was around back then, um, but I think there's been a whole lot of doctrinal development um, for Jimmy Aiken as well. Uh, so what are we seeing? What, what does this mean for the future of Catholic apologetics? I'm not sure. Uh, Francis's impact is huge. And I have to wonder if his death or resignation, whichever comes first, isn't going to have even greater consequences because of the system he's put in place that would basically hobble any conservative that might be elected, which, given the system he's put in place, it's next to impossible to have happen anyways. So, it's fascinating to think about these things. It really, really is fascinating to think about these things. Anyways, got to get to the conference. Um, got to see Keith Foskey wrestle Leighton Flowers. Um, Sam Waldron's there. Uh, it's it's going to be really, really interesting. And... Um, uh, pray for us that the Lord be glorified in what takes place during the course of the conference. Uh, that means today will be the last of the programs. 
Um, not again. I'm recording. Like I think it's tomorrow night. Uh, an hour and a half with it's Marlin, isn't it? On YouTube, I, I don't have time to grab it right now. Um, but we're going to be doing a, a thing on the um, Trinity prior to the Council of Nicaea. I think that I think it will be live. I'm not 100 certain about that. Uh, I think it will be. Maybe if it is, I can ask him for the link and I can post it or something like that. Um, but uh, then I don't know if the debate will be uh, broadcast live or not. I don't honestly remember. Oh. <laughs> but anyways, uh, evidently the Internet's a train wreck and we're going to have to upload this stuff anyways. So just recording it. Hopefully enough of it got through that some of you are blessed. But we'll see you, Lord willing, next week as we travel back to, well, no, early next week as I travel over to uh, Arkansas. I'll be teaching Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, so there's no way to do programs then. So we'll have to get something in early. Uh, and then travel back down to Houston and two more debates uh, down there. Long trip. Thanks for your support. Travel fund, that's how we get through all of this. Um, and um, I'm sure this uh, internet wreck stuff is all, I'm hearing about AT&T's down and all the rest of that stuff. Obviously the aliens are landing. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a mothership over there running through all the all the poor little defenseless satellites and it's all over with anyhow. <laughs> yeah, well, anyways. Okay, thanks for watching the program today. We will see you next time. God bless.